You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan here with Skylar. And uh, here we go again. Here we go. Last one on Acts. I know. We are we're almost into Romans. So there's that. Two weeks. <laughs> you spend two weeks on Romans. Well, supposedly on Romans. Yeah, we were just talking about it's going to be fascinating to see the way that they deal with didactic material. (laughs) Uh, Because, yeah, I was just now thinking about all the talks and general conference talks and things that I have listened to. Yeah. And I can't think of very many where they're dissecting didactic material, teaching material. So epistles, you know, things that are just clear Christian doctrine. As much as it's usually appealing to parables or stories or things like that, and uh, kind of you know using the some of the elements of the story to to uh, of course from our perspective, eisegete their meaning into it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, vague narrative or hyper focused King James English of one verse apart from context with none given. Yep, yep, that's that's how they do it. Yep, so that'll be interesting. Yeah. You got anything exciting going on besides reading and car repairs lately? Oh, my goodness. I'll be walking around forever. Yeah. 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 Maybe it'll be good for me. At least Provo is a very walkable city. Yeah, and it's beautiful. Orem. I mean, it's pretty. There's sidewalks everywhere. Mm-hmm. Good to go. <laughs> yes. You have a bike? You, you know, it's funny. Dare I admit this? Never owned a bike. I'm not sure I could even ride one. Really? Yeah. That wasn't part of your missionary training? <laughs> <laughs> no. Of course, I was heading up. You know, to Minnesota, so yeah, I had all but that. Yeah, yeah, I had um, all these heat pads, and I mean, yeah. it was gonna be freezing. Oh, and man. they're like knock on doors with golf balls, and oh, really? They gave yeah, you golf balls? yeah, I had golf balls for wow. knocking on doors in the winter. Yeah, but nope, yep, nothing with a bike. We have a team out here helping us do some outreach and whatnot. They were doing some door knocking this uh this past week and you know came across came across a pretty well-known lds guy's house so but we weren't using golf balls so maybe no i don't know no i i'm glad he got invited to he's invited to church yes Mm -hmm. dallin oaks yes you're invited to our church yes anytime and I don't. That would I don't be think Madden they. Yeah, well. I was saying. I don't think they were handing out like podcast cards because sometimes we'll we'll hand those out when we're going around. Just you know. Yeah. So. Anyway. Well, yeah. Let's make it even more official. Dallin Oaks. Anytime. I would love to interview you about great. family, a proclamation to the world, and all the story behind it. Yeah. If he ever let's do it. What's up for it? Yeah. Anyway, that was that was fun. <laughs> our uh, our folks who were out here just they didn't really know. Yeah, they didn't know what the they first presidency was. So, yeah, just out there and had a normal conversation. Like That's great, though. Don't know who this this. So now, now to be clear, he wasn't there, but his wife answered the door and yeah. they talked with her for for a while. So it probably anyway. went better than it would have had they known. Yeah, you know, yeah, who they were. Yeah, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. So you just never know who you're going to run into in Provo, Utah. It's true. Anywhere, anytime. It's true. All right, man. Well, we, I reckon we should get on into Let's it because we we might as well. What yep. else? What else do we have to do? Exactly. Besides, what else do the listener yes, have to do? That's right. right. This is what you're here for. Yep. So, all right, we're we're looking at Acts twenty two to twenty eight is the the 
texts of scripture. And once we get into it, we're going to see that it's really just a few sections from that that they're alluding to to do their teaching of their doctrine. Uh, so this is the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum for July 31st to August 6th in 2023. As we say over and over again, you don't have to be listening in real time to benefit from this, but just so anybody who's following along knows what lesson we are in. It is looking at Acts 22 to 28, and the subtitle for all this is A Minister and a Witness. Okay, so um, basically the two main categories that we're going to be looking at today are what an LDS perspective on bearing testimony is and what, again, an LDS perspective on prophets are. And so we'll look at those hopefully for some, from some different angles than what we have in the past. And we haven't really talked much about bearing testimony from an LDS perspective. So I'm curious to hear just some of your thoughts on what that is, what that means. Some of our evangelical Christian listeners would benefit from knowing how central that kind of a concept is to the LDS uh, common practice in uh, both their wards, but then also in conversations that they're having outside of their wards. So the uh, the, uh, lesson starts off in pretty much the same way that we've seen it starting off about just kind of seeking this personal inspiration as a teacher as you're preparing to teach this class to your uh, class members. And uh, and then, uh, you know, in the invite sharing, invite several class members to share why these verses are meaningful to them. So they're supposed to read, gather all the information from these verses, and then share what was meaningful to them. To them, not meaningful in itself, of course, to them. Yeah. To yeah. the subjective. Yep. Okay, so getting into the teach the doctrine portion here. The first uh, couple of passages that are alluded to are Acts 22, 1 to 21, and then Acts 26, 1 to 29. And both of those accounts, if you go and look at them, are essentially Paul giving his personal testimony of conversion, which as you know, if you know your New Testaments, Paul regularly alludes to his personal testimony and his conversion, and he does so as a way of uh, sharing the gospel with people. So in the subtitle here, the subtitle in the curriculum says, a testimony is a declaration of truth based on personal knowledge or belief. Okay, so notice some of those phrases there. They do say it's a declaration of truth, but what is the source of that truth? It's based on personal knowledge or belief. And that gets into a lot of the things we've talked about already about this, uh, this, the, the truth is really centered within the individual, right? Kind of this postmodern way of, of thought where, uh, there's less focus on some bigger truth that's actually out there and more focus on your experience of what you uh, believe ought to be seen as true. Um, any comments you want to make on the subtitle there? Well, I thought the, the, um, interesting word that I was not expecting it was belief yeah yep that that's it new it's something I wouldn't have guessed would have been in this manual because um not not to jump the gun but if you hear a standard LDS testimony they never tell you they don't start it by saying I believe they start it by saying I know yeah yep okay and then getting into that actual content there Uh, They say Paul's testimony to Festus and King Agrippa can be an opportunity to discuss what it means to bear testimony. 
You could ask class members to review the two ver- the two sections. What do we learn from Paul's example about bearing testimony? What additional principles about bearing testimony do we learn from the statement by President M. Or, or, yeah, M. Russell Ballard in the additional resources? And then they reference a hymn, uh, which I don't have the lyrics in front of me. Do you have the lyrics of that hymn? I, I, do, not. Right now? I do not. Okay, well, they, they reference a hymn that is called Testimony, and maybe I'll look that up here in just a little bit. Um, but they say, you know, sing or play this hymn to invite the Spirit into your discussion as a class. Um, and then they go on and they say, even though Paul wasn't seeking the spiritual witness he received on the road to Damascus, and I'll listen to this, he spent the rest of his life working to maintain and defend his testimony. Paul's example could help your class understand that a testimony requires work and sacrifice. To start a discussion about this, perhaps a class member could describe his or her effort to become a skilled musician, artist, or athlete. How is developing such a skill similar to gaining and strengthening a testimony? What efforts must we also make to gain and strengthen a testimony? Okay, and then just because they already referenced the additional resources, I found this fascinating in the additional resources. Um, And you may even fill some of this in when you're talking about what the bearing of testimony looks like in the word meetings and things like that typically. But they quote Russell, Russell Ballard, and he says this, our testimony meetings, which this is uh, a meeting uh, once a month in the LDS wards where they take turns, open mic, sharing testimony, essentially. Our testimony meetings need to be more centered on the Savior, the doctrines of the gospel, the blessings of the restoration, and the teachings of the scriptures. We need to replace stories, travelogues, and lectures with pure testimonies. Those who are entrusted with... Entrusted to speak and teach in our meetings need to do so with doctrinal power that will be both heard and felt, lifting the spirits and edifying our people. While it is good, it is always good to express love and gratitude, such expressions do not constitute the kind of testimony that will ignite a fire of belief in the lives of others. The bare testimony is to bear witness by the power of the Holy Ghost to make a solemn declaration of truth based on personal knowledge or belief. Clear declaration of truth makes a difference in people's lives. That's what changes hearts. That is what the Holy Ghost can can confirm in the hearts of God's children. So there's a call, and this is from, by the way, all the way back in 2004, from uh, Russell Ballard to make your testimony richer in doctrine, richer in truth, richer in declarations of your personal belief. Um, I found that really fascinating because it seems to me in my conversations with uh, with many LDS people that there's a retreat from that sort of bold declaration of their beliefs. And so we'll get into more of that here Definitely. in a little bit. But go ahead and just fill in for us what uh, the LDS people mean when they are saying you need to bear your testimony. What does that look like practically? Yeah, well... To to frame it, they, they cite a Book of Mormon verse I thought was worth reading. Um, and this is, uh, you know, one of these, uh, supposedly one of these Native American prophets. Um, and he says in Alma 546, Behold, I say unto you, they are made known unto me, these things he's been teaching, but literally the manual just cites this verse, like out of its even its own context. But 
may known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God, behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. So notice, you put in the work, and then maybe you'll get this, and then you have to maintain it. And now I do know for myself that they are true, for the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit, and this is the spirit of revelation which is in me. Um, similarly, in this section that, um, and this is more developed in the seminary manual, um, this King Agrippa defense of Paul, Joseph Smith um, made about, of course, himself, um, it said, quote, Paul made his defense before King Agrippa and related the account of the vision he had when he saw a light and heard a voice, but still there were but few who believed him. Some said he was dishonest. You see this? How he's, he's using this as a template for the experience that he's going to write of himself. Others said he was mad. and He was ridiculed and reviled. But all this did not destroy the reality of his vision. He had seen a vision. He knew he had, and all the persecution under heaven could not make it otherwise. And though they should persecute him unto death, yet he knew and would know to his latest breath that he had both seen a light and heard a voice speaking unto him, and all the world could not make him think or believe otherwise. That's in the Joe Smith history, um, as well as a couple other places. So that, that it's, it's interesting that they turn Paul's declaration of the gospel into somehow a test, a per, his own personal testimony, and he's an example of someone who's worked hard enough to maintain it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so, kind of interesting. Now, in terms of um, what it looks like, and this is going to be dated a little bit. In fact, this this whole lesson, you know, one of the reasons why the second section on ministering uh, didn't really stand out to me is this is this is after my time in LDSism. Now they're called yeah. ministers and right, right. I, I, they were home teachers when I was in. So, yeah. Um, so at least how it worked when I was in, um, was the first Sunday of every month was known as testimony meeting. Now at that time it was a three block meeting. Uh, sorry. Th- church was, had three blocks to it each about an hour long though. The sacrament meeting typically went a little longer. And then you had Sunday school or gospel doctrine or temple prep or something like that, the second hour. And then the third hour was where you would have your priesthood quorums or your Relief Society meeting for the women. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that's all different now, but this is how it was. The first week of every month in the sacrament meeting uh, portion of church, you start the normal way by having the sacrament, which is bread and water, to symbolize the, you know, bread and liquid of Jesus. And um, then at the conclusion of that, basically the bishop or one of his counselors who was assigned, oh, I probably should say this, in every ward you have a bishop and he picks two counselors. Mm -hmm. And that's the bishopric. Um, Now, some places in the world, they don't have a big enough group, so they be they're not it's not the same structure though it's a similar structure but whoever it is assigned that month has to get up announce its testimony meeting and then bear his testimony to start it off gotcha right and of course um in my experience that tended to be the only one that was kind of focused on anything 
substantive, probably because they talk about it. I mean, they're the ones that are probably a little more proactive in reading talks like M. Russell Ballard's. Yeah. It'll be brief. It'll be quick. Um, it might involve their own personal story of having prayed or received an experience or a dream or something like that and how they know it's true. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and then they will get down and it's up to whoever feels called to bear their testimony will get up and, and then it will just continue. Yeah. And sometimes there's a long line. Sometimes you're waiting in between, um, and, and it is a yeah, totally open mic, a completely open like mic. Like you can be non LDS and get up and testify. Right. Um, yep. In fact, I, I've had, uh, people that I know who have family members who are LDS and their LDS family members have encouraged them to come and give testimony in their testimony meeting, even though they are evangelical Christians. I, wow. I never experienced that. Yeah. So that's that interesting. Sh- shows some of the direction of where <laughs> things are now. Yeah. I bet uh, that Bishop was a little uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. Well, I, d- I don't think that this person ended up going. But oh, okay. Just, just the, the <laughs> fact that there's that sort of encouragement of like, Hey, yeah, you can come, you can get up, you can go talk. Right. Do it, you know? Yep. Um, but yeah. It, and it's not just in the, the ward meetings. Yeah, I mean, this is something that that is an element in their missionary work. Yes, and also, I I come across this sort of thing in conversations with LDS people out on the street. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and and honestly, some of the more now painful, um, but some of the more emotional testimony meetings I ever experienced were on camping trips. Boy Scout trips. Um, there's a, an imitation of the Pioneer um, Trek. They call it the Trek. I don't know if they still do it, but oh yeah, uh, do they still oh, do well, it? They do Trek. Okay, so oh, yeah. there's there's a testimony meeting toward the end. Okay, um, and the one I went on in particular was pretty emotional. Yeah, um, and it, it so it is typically emotional too. Very right. I oh, mean, extremely. Yeah. Um, Tears are common, yeah. and and you, I mean, there are types of people that just, um, and I, I'm not saying this just to be rude. It's just true that are, you know, they like the attention and they get up often and they're not shy about it at all. And sometimes it could feel uh, month to month to month like they were just giving an update on their life. Yeah, like okay, here's where things are now and this and I trying really hard. I'm praying about this. And it just seems like a journal yeah. <laughs> entry. And then you probably month. have other people who never get up. No. Yeah. And it could be once a year or every few years and they're emotional and they're shy. And they always, um, there's a typical pattern. Uh, those who have been to them, especially consistently will know what I'm saying of do you start by feigning like, Oh, I shouldn't, I didn't want to get up here. I didn't, I don't know what to say, you know, kind of, acknowledging um, their feelings of shyness. And so it, what, it, what it can do for those people is that it's it takes courage to do it. And so when they sit down, you can imagine the just natural endorphins and all this stuff, right, of like, oh, wow, I did that. And it can kind of cement um, their feelings, their subjective commitment yeah. to these things. Yeah. I mean, it really yeah. can. You, you rarely hear somebody get up. And acknowledge serious questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's typically milk toast. I mean, um, 
not always, but typically it's the, I love my family. Uh, I know heavenly father lives. I know this church is true. I know Thomas S. Monson or Russell Nelson is his prophet. Mm -hmm. I know, right. It's, I know, I know, I know, I know the book of Mormon's true. I know, right. All based on this subjective confirmation of these things, right? Through through feelings, experiences, experiences, feelings while reading the Book of Mormon, things right. like that. Yeah. And, a, and a testimony meeting is almost a facilitator for those types of experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, it can be say there's somebody you know and have known and haven't seen this side of them, and they're getting emotional about the first vision, um, and you love them. Right. I mean, yeah. it, it moves people, it binds people, it, um, it, it's, it, honestly, it's a powerful element and you can, you can hear the cadence to it. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard this as well going out where it's not even, there's a pattern to what's said, but there's a feel, there's a rhythm there's a tone to what they're saying that almost signals testimony. Yeah. So if I were to get up and, you know, um, bear my testimony, something I know is true. And it's, that's always, it's always, no, it's always an inner knowing. Yeah. Um, that's why this word belief is kind of weird. Um, it was always no, 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 no. Um, and, there might be people who really emphasize it using terms that reminiscent of the sublime, right? I know as surely as I stand here today, I know, um, I know as much as anything, uh, else I have experienced. I, you know, it's, yeah, I, mean, I don't, was there another direction? Yeah. No, you'd I like to good. take that. I mean, I, yeah, no, and it is, it is very much this, and we've talked about it before, but, you know they keep bringing this stuff up you see how central it is to their faith but yeah. the 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 subjective confidence or the Absolutely. confidence in the subjective yep. you know the, this is what i know and we've talked about the difference in where where we believe knowledge comes from it's not right. this inner subjective feeling of the no. truth it's uh, it's rooted in objective facts of history mm-hmm. it's rooted in jesus who really did come and in his apostles who really did witness him and who really did teach us the right doctrine that we ought to believe about who he is. So it's rooted in these objective truths, not in our subjective feelings or responses to the truth. And, uh, and so it's just a fundamental difference. But even if they're going to focus more on doctrine, you sent me a uh, article that is a general conference talk that was given by Ezra Taft Benson yes. back in 1988, October of 1988. And the title of that talk is I Testify. Mm-hmm. And he just goes with that sort of cadence of I testify of this, I testify of that. So here are just a few sorts of things that you might expect if an LDS person is testifying or bearing witness they, in a doctrinal way, like what uh, what's being encouraged here from Russell Ballard. Um, th- this would be the kind of doctrines that they would be declaring. I testify that in our pre-mortal existent state uh, or our pre-mortal state, our elder brother in the spirit, even Jesus Christ, became our foreordained savior in the Father's plan of salvation. He is the captain of our salvation and the only means through whom we can return to our Father in heaven and gain that fullness of joy. I testify that Luther 
that Lucifer was also in the council of, uh, of heaven. He sought to destroy the agency of man. He rebelled. There was a war in heaven, and a third of the hosts were cast to the earth and denied a body. Lucifer is the enemy of all righteousness and seeks the misery of mankind. I testify that all those who come into mortality accepted uh, our Father's plan. Having proved faithful in their first estate in heaven, they are now subject to the test of mortality in the second estate. That test entails doing all things whatsoever the Lord requires. Those who prove faithful in this second estate will have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. And we could keep skipping down. I don't know if there's any that you want to point to in particular in here, but it eventually obviously goes to things like, I testify that God the Father and his son Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph Smith in the spring of 1820, thus bringing to an end the long night of apostasy. To Joseph to Joseph Smith appeared other beings, including John the Baptist and Peter, James and John, who ordained him with authority to act in the name of God. And then he goes on, I testify that though the Book of Mormon, uh, that through the Book of Mormon, God has provided for our day a tangible evidence that Jesus is the Christ, and so on and so forth. So, uh, and then he, he uh, inserts, of course, I testify, this one was fascinating to me, I testify that America mm-hmm. is a choice land. God yep. raised up the founding fathers of the United States of America and established the inspired, inspired. Constitution. <laughs> so it's not just a Book of Mormon that's inspired, it's also yeah. the Constitution of the United States of America. But the, the Bible... Choice land. But the Bible, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So these are the sorts of things that they would be testifying about. So just know that when they're talking about testify about doctrine, they very, very specifically mean their doctrine. Yes. They're very explicit LDS distinctives. And it's just so rare that I see LDS people really firmly testifying to their distinctives anymore. Uh, yeah, in fact, <laughs> in fact, they consider it offensive when we try to hold them to their distinctives in conversations that we have yeah. out on the street. We've seen it even just this week as we've been doing outreach and having conversations with LDS people. There tends to be even an immediate offensiveness that comes up because the current encouragement from the current modern prophet is we should be non-contentious, we should be peacemakers, we shouldn't fight, we should partner together with all other people who want to be un- under the umbrella of good moral yeah. people. Um, so there's a there's like a running away from this sort of distinctiveness, and yet they are telling their people you should boldly bear testimony. So I'm like, which yeah. is it? You know, yeah. do, do you need to be boldly boldly bearing testimony? Do you need to be telling me as an evangelical Christian that I need to repent of my false beliefs and come to the LDS gospel, or is that something we should just wash out and we should partner together on uh, on good deeds as you know? they would want to define that. Right, be nice. And yeah, let's just yeah. all be nice. God's nice. Let's be nice. That's that's my sense in conversation more today. Yeah. And um it yeah, that honestly there seems to be a real I think in part that is there is a real identity crisis today for the LDS church when it comes to their ideas. Um honestly, in going through this manual and all the stuff we've covered, especially in historical context, what is Mormon doctrine anymore? You know, what are the yeah. limits of that? Mm-hmm. And where are the boundaries of that? Where's the envelope? Where's the edge? Yep. And um, there's some things that they're consistent about, but they don't seem proud enough to just say it. Yeah. And, and yeah, so there's, I think, in part, the testimonies are suffering, and they can 
kind of, you know, say there needs to be more substance in it, but I think this is kind of a half a gaslight to the members. And I guess this is me defending LDS. What are they supposed to testify of? Yeah. I mean, it's like, I love Jesus. Okay. Yeah. All right. Which Jesus, I mean, the second you start defining who he is, it's like, do I lean into the LDS view or keep it vague? So we could just get along or whatever. I, 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 on one hand, I can totally see why. On the other hand, I guess there is just the kind of an intellectual frustration I have about the what seems to be an unwillingness to just say what you mean and defend it mm-hmm. on the part of especially the leaders whom the members are looking to to teach. Yeah. And they, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess... When they say, when Ballard says the Savior, the doctrines of the gospel, what are those? Yeah. So that you can hold your members yep, to that, yep. right? I, I remember definitely most of the, the testimonies in my LDS experience were absolutely shallow and worthless. It, yeah. it was the week I would try to get out of it the most, Yep. Yep. honestly. We had one person that got into good conversation with a sister missionary um, this past week, and the sister missionary was... was uh, totally affirming. Yeah, we believe the Trinity too. We, we believe in the Trinity. And uh, anyway, so that's no, the kind of stuff we're talking yeah, about here. Yeah. It's like, what LDS person genuinely thinks they believe in the Trinity? Yeah, you know. So that that's yeah. what is so hard. Is it's like, yep. You know, and I don't know if it's just genuine ignorance, but you'd think that they'd be doing a little better of a job in their missionary training to make clear what these doctrines are that their missionaries are supposed to be teaching people. Absolutely. Are you, are you really like, why are you just agreeing with me on the Trinity instead of trying to convert me to your actual understanding of the Godhead? Right. I'm saying so totally. I, and in it, I was sick of the games as well in terms of the words used. So I can remember a specific conversation. I would go up to general conference to talk to the Christians. Can you believe that? Yeah. I like to debate the Christians. Yep. And this is the thing. If I would say, yeah, I think we're Christian, but if the Trinity is essential to Christianity, then I'm proud not to be. Yeah. I mean, I was firm. I mean, I knew the Joseph Smith quotes mocking the Trinity, and I was with him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I definitely, the, I remember a distinct conversation on a date. Oh, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> where I, I was just describing, I wasn't even saying what I believed at this point in time. But I was just saying, yeah, I don't, I don't think LDS are Christian. I kept talking about it as if they were distinct, and she was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! You don't think LDS are Christian?" And I'm like, "Well, no." And she's like, "Well, why?" Yeah. And I said, "Well, first off, I think Christians are monotheistic." She said, "Well, I only believe in one God." I said, "Which one?" Mm-hmm. Um, Heavenly Father. So you don't believe in Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it was, it's just two questions away. And I, once again, it's, there's a logic to Mormonism for those who really care about it. Mm. Once again, even they are allergic to uh, anything systematic and are prone to word games at key points. But you, you make that shallow in what's left. I mean, if you don't even have that logic anymore, you don't teach it, you don't emphasize it clearly certainly not in a context of distinguishing from everybody else. What are you left with? It, yeah. You're left with this kind of 
I don't know, moralistic therapeutic deism. You're left with just be nice. Yeah. So just quickly, and then we'll move on to the second part because we've got a lot on that too. But but we as creedal Christians, evangelical Christians, certainly believe that it is good for Christians to testify um, about Christ. Um, and, you know, we even would encourage people to willingly share their testimony. You know, we actually have some folks who are going to be joining the membership of our church here in a few awesome. weeks. And we've had some others that in weeks past have just recently shared their testimony with the church. And so there is a category within Christianity of bearing a sort of testimony. I don't even like using that word because of the way it's understood right. out here. Same. But still, there's an understanding of of declaring what God has done in you. Yeah. And so I just thought it might be helpful to read. There's an article that's in the Evangelical uh, Dictionary of Theology on witnessing, um, which if you look up testimony, it tells you go to witnessing. And I just thought just to read this would be helpful to see how a, a Christian thinks of this idea of giving testimony. Properly, a witness is one who testifies by act or word his testimony to the truth. This act of testifying is called his testimony. And uh, then it gives a little bit of historical background there. And I'm just going to jump forward in the article here and, uh, and read the end where it says, The pattern of Christian missionary and evangelistic activity is set in the New Testament. In other words, the way that we witness and what we're doing when we're witnessing or testifying is set in the New Testament. Several principles emerge. First, witnessing is the universal obligation of all Christians. That, that, the, uh, that the act of witnessing was not restricted to the apostles and ministers is shown by those references and acts that speak of all the disciples giving testimony. This is one of the most needed emphasis, emphases in modern Christianity, that every Christian ought to be testifying to uh, the gospel. And that's what it gets into next. And this is the critical point for us here in the distinction between our idea of bearing testimony and LDS understanding. The testimony to be given centered in the facts and meaning of the earthly ministry of Jesus and his saving power. The primary witnesses were the apostles who had personal knowledge of this ministry from its beginning. This knowledge they delivered to others who gave testimony to it also. They, in turn, were to entrust this message to others who would continue to give witness to it. The primary message was the Christian tradition, or the paradosis, and that's seen in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 3, yep. which we've read that out loud as one of our creeds, even on, on this uh, podcast. So the, there is a clear declaration of what we are testifying of as Christians, and what that is is who Christ is. It's his saving power. It's his saving work. It's, it's the gospel. Yep. We are preaching the gospel according to the scriptures. And then uh, third, they note Christian witnesses were to be faithful without regard to their personal safety or comfort. And fourth, Christian testimony was attended by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of God's presence and power. So the, imp the important point there, again, is just what are we testifying about? Well, when you look at all these LDS uh, testimonies, and I testify this, I, I know this, 
things of that nature. There's nothing really about the saving power of Jesus. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really about his death, burial, and resurrection as being your only hope in, in life and death, is that he yeah. came and he did that for you. Um, there's no clear declaration of the nature of Christ and who he was. The The things that, that uh, the people of God were focusing on in the uh, New Testament era um, are not present. No, in uh, an LDS testimony, the doctrines of Christ, who He is, that that He is God. I mean, you know, I, I even preached from uh, from uh, Colossians one fifteen to seventeen. Such a joy just even studying that text mm-hmm. about seeing how Paul is testifying that Christ is the image of the invisible God, and how his language there is indicating that He always eternally has been and is and continues to be the image of the invisible God. It's called a gnomic present, meaning it's timeless. So Christ always has been the image. He didn't become the image at any point in time. Nope. He always has been imaging the Father mm-hmm. uh, as the second person of the Trinity. And uh, and then Paul goes on to make clear that that means that Jesus did not come into existence with the creation, but he is the creator. It is It is by him through him and for him, that all things that have been made are made. And so those are the kinds of things that Paul is testifying about. And Paul, by the way, we would say is even given a unique calling uh, in testifying to these things because that's what the apostles were meant to do, was to testify to who Christ is so that a foundation would be laid, as we've talked about, so that the church knows what we continue to testify about going into the future. And by God's grace, Christians have been testifying of the truth of the gospel. They have pres- been preserving the true nature of Christ and uh, and the true nature of God um, ever since the beginning. And uh, that's what we continue to cling to. So that helps us segue pretty easily into their next section, which uh, I'm just going to skip the one that's we have responsibility to minister to others because that's tied into the things we've already been talking about. But um, th- in Acts 27, they they move from, you know, this idea of we need to give testimony to we need to heed the Lord's prophets and he will get guide and protect us from evil if we do. And they're pulling this from Acts 27, which is a story of Acts on the, the ship when he is, of course, on his way to Rome and if you know the story, they get caught in a storm, and Paul says, uh, you should have listened to me to begin with, because he tried to warn them not to go, because there could be storms, and they went anyways. And uh, and yet, Paul says, we're going to wreck our ship, but all of us are going to survive. And then they all survive, and uh, glory is, is given to God as a result of all this. But the way the LDS people want to take that story and run with it is, if we heed the Lord's prophets, he will guide us and protect us from evil. And then there's this emphasis, this focus on trusting the prophet, listening to the prophet. If you do what the prophet says, he will protect you and everything in your life will be well. Skylar, take that and run with it. Yeah, well, we've had uh, almost an entire episode talking about the false prophecies from the LDS prophets. And notice there's not even a sense, not anywhere, I was looking for it, of what saying we've been wrong before we we have emphasized as a group even if you want to say the 15 um we have emphasized things that haven't happened or 
that have been wrong or shouldn't have been emphasized, at least to the degree. Nope. Instead, it's this, um, in a sense, they want the mystique to be the absolute same that it used to be. And yet, what is defined as counsel in the manual is as milk toast as anything you'll encounter in the LDS community. Um, in other words, you know, before it was like Jesus is coming in 1890 or 91, right? <laughs> we went through those quotes. Go back to that episode if you want to hear several specific examples of literally, you know, Wilford Woodruff telling entire LDS groups, you know, your kids uh, won't die because the Savior's coming back that soon, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. Didn't happen. Instead, now it's read for the strength of youth pamphlet. <laughs> now it's this, quote, these are examples given in the seminary manual about the Council of the Prophets, and above it it says, invite students to ponder how they feel about responding to the Council of Prophets. Notice, revelations, inspirate, you know, counsel, and it's stuff like this. Do your part to make your place, your home, a place where everyone can feel the Savior's love. Mm -hmm. um, can that ever be wrong? Uh, how about this one? You have both temporal and spiritual reasons to seek and love learning. Education is part of your eternal goal to become more like Heavenly Father. Mm -hmm. See how vague and just... Uh, it's just interesting to see the change culturally uh, in terms of what is expected of the leaders, you know? Um to, to where now it can be, you know, the Lord has impressed on my mind. You should say the in full name of the church, you know. Um, and everybody gets giddy and all excited, you know. They, they're charismatically so hungry as a community that that, oh, that we're going to change the missionary age, you know. Whereas before it was, I mean, all sorts of very specific things like, you know, and the preppers will get into some of it, right? Seven years food storage or this or that or yeah. invest in gold or whatever. And yet, at the end, they'll say principles can be things like this. If we ignore the warnings and counsel of the Lord's servants, then we put ourselves in danger. If we heed the counsel and warnings of the Lord's servants, then the Lord will fulfill his promises to us, right? Um, and... It has, a, of course, a litany of questions um, trying to encourage discussion about what it means to follow the prophet. They still have in, in the manual that the Lord teaches through the prophet. His voice is the Lord's. Um, this is interesting, that his warnings will often come through his chosen prophets. Mm -hmm. There's a weasel word. And, of course, it talks about sustaining all members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators. And yet, at the end of the day, it's just policy. It's counsel. Yeah. It's yeah. it's really vague. Now, one thing that did come up even in conversation this week, it's always insightful when we have lots of people out, yeah. you know, having conversations with people because you, you get a taste of what's what's being said right now, but... Um, one one person had, had asked, the you know, or, or maybe hadn't even put the question, I don't think it was even asked as a question, but one of the people they were talking to very much wanted to clarify, we do not, uh, we do not worship the prophet, we worship Jesus Christ. And uh, I just thought it might be helpful very quickly to read some lyrics from an LDS hymn. And uh, tell me if this is not worshiping a prophet. 
Praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. Jesus anointed that prophet and seer. Blessed to open the last dispensation. Kings shall extol him and nations revere. Hail to the prophet ascended to heaven. Traitors and tyrants now fight him in vain. Mingling with gods. Gods. Yep. He can plan for his brethren. Death cannot conquer the hero again. Praise to his memory. He died as a martyr. Honored and blessed be his be his ever great name. Long shall his blood, which was shed by assassins, plead unto heaven while the earth lauds his fame. Great is his glory and endless his priesthood. Ever and ever the keys he will hold. Faithful and true, he will enter his kingdom, crowned in the midst of the prophets of old. Sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. Earth must atone for the blood of that man. Wake up the world for the conflict of justice. Millions shall know who? Brother Joseph. Brother Joseph again. That is a praise song to Joseph Smith. Yeah. So, yeah, the the prophet's kind of a big deal. Yeah, Parley Pratt, I think in his, one of his books, um, even said something to the effect of Joseph Smith will come back again to right before Jesus comes back again. Yeah. So, second second coming of Joseph. And and I find a lot of LDS people don't know that Joseph Smith even boasted that he had done more yeah. For uh, you know the the Jesus's church than even Jesus did. Right. Jesus could Jesus couldn't church. hold his church together, but right. I could. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joseph Smith boasted of those sorts of things. Yep. But I think it'd be helpful just to go through this real quick. Yes. Another thing that you sent me. This is like Benson week, I guess. But uh, Ezra Taft Benson uh, gave a talk at BYU in 1980, and this is 14 fundamentals in following the prophet. So how do you do what this manual is encouraging us to do? Heed the Lord's prophets, yes. and he'll guide us and protect us from evil. Well, according to Benson, here's what that means. And this was right before Benson was, of course, the, uh, the prophet. Yeah. Um, so he, he's uh, just giving counsel to people of how to honor the, the uh, prophet who is in the office. Right. He was president of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time. Yeah. So... Um, let's just shoot through these real fast. I'll read all of them, and then we'll yeah. come back and comment on some that we think are worthy of that. Sounds good. So here's the first uh, fundamental. The prophet is the only man who speaks for the Lord in everything. Secondly, the living prophet is more vital to us than the standard works. That would include, of course, the Bible. Yep. Third, the living prophet is more important to us than a dead prophet. Fourth, the prophet will never lead the church astray. Fifth, the prophet is not required to have any particular earthly training or credentials to speak on any subject or act on any matter at any time. Sixth, the prophet does not have to say, thus saith the Lord, to give us scripture. Seventh, the prophet tells us what we need to know, not always what we want to know. Uh... Eighth, the prophet is not limited by men by men's reasoning. Ninth, the prophet can receive revelation on any matter, temporal or spiritual. Tenth, the prophet may be involved in civic matters. Eleventh, the two groups who have the greatest difficulty in following the prophet are the proud who are learned and the proud who are rich. Uh, that was eleven, yeah. Yep. Twelve. The prophet will not necessarily be popular with the world uh, or the worldly. Thirteenth, the prophet and his counselors make up the first presidency, the highest quorum in the church. Fourteenth, 
the prophet and his presidency, the living prophet and the first presidency. Follow them and be blessed. Reject them and suffer. Yep. Nice little curse there. Okay, so here's one that I thought was was worth focusing in on. Um, the point number two, which is the living prophet is more vital to us than the standard works. So here's what this says. President Wildred, uh, Wilford Woodruff tells uh, of an interesting incident that occurred in the days of the prophet Joseph Smith. So this is what Woodruff is referring to. <laughs> so this happened in the days of Joseph Smith. Yep. I will refer to a certain meeting I attended in the town of Kirkland in my early days. At that meeting, some remarks that were, were made that have uh, that have been made here today with regard to the living oracles and with regard to the written word of God. So how do you respond to the written word of God is the question. Yes. The same principle was presented, although not as extensively as it, been he, as it has been here, when a leading man in the church got up and talked upon the subject and said, you have got the word of God before you here in the Bible, Book of Mormon and Doctrine of Covenants. You have the written word of God. And, and you who give revelations should give revelations according to these books, as what is written in those books is the word of God. We should confine ourselves to them. So you see this person stands up and is trying to say, the prophet should not say what is beyond the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and yep. the Doctrine and Covenants. Yep. He should be bound to those books and not say more than that because God has already written what we need there. Confine ourselves to those things. When he concluded, that man making the argument, Brother Joseph turned to Brother Brigham Young and said, Brother Brigham, I want you to stand to take the stand and tell us your views with regard to the living oracles and the written word of God. Brother Brigham took the stand, and he took the Bible and laid it down. And he took the Book of Mormon and laid it down. And he took the Book of Doctrine and Covenants and laid it down before him. And he said, There is the written word of God to us concerning the work of God from the beginning of the world, almost to our day. And now, he said, when compared to the living oracles, those books are nothing to me. Those books do not convey the word of God direct to us now, as do the words of a prophet or a man bearing the holy priesthood in our day and generation. I would rather have the living oracles than all the writing in the books. That was the course he pursued. When he was through, Brother Joseph said to the congregation, Brother Brigham has told you the word of the Lord, and he has told you the truth. Yeah, General Conference, October 1897. Yep. So that's one of the fundamental points. The living prophet is way more important than the Bible. Yep. Um, and it's not even like trying to hide. It's, no. It's right there. No, right? and it is, it is interesting that... I believe it was Harold B. Lee. Somebody wants to correct me. I, I welcome. I'm pretty sure it was Harold B. Lee. He did have a quote saying that you test what we say by the standard works. Yeah, and there will be some that latch onto that. Mm -hmm. But once again, once you have this charismatic authority, and in the structure the way it is, how do you limit it? Yeah, how do you limit it? And I think. If you look at these 14 points, you can see how quickly two or three of them can be pitted against two or three others. Oh, yeah. But this is Benson, in my opinion, trying to be as faithful to what it means to have a living prophet now relative to something that was given to a certain time and place. Yeah. And this this is what we were talking about of uh, the nature of the LDS faith has absolutely no absolute truth <laughs> yeah. because you've got... 
this concept of what is what is uh, I mean, as C.S. Lewis famously said, and a lot of people ironically like C.S. Lewis out here, it's chronological snobbery. Yeah, the newer the better, right? So the third point is the living prophet is more important to us than a dead prophet. Yeah. So you're always looking for the new, you know, the novel. Uh, give us give us something different than what we've had before, and that's why we say that the LDS faith is a progressive faith it's, uh, at it's, its liberal core. theology i mean it's liberal theology and it, yep. it, it can't be anything else because there's no there's no root to it it's no. not rooted in anything it's more like driftwood in the ocean than it is a tree planted by a stream of living water <laughs> um and so it's going to go wherever the world goes ultimately and that's what you see happen throughout time and history is whatever is popular whatever is going to help them save face the most um that's ultimately what they're going to to cling to um, because that's what's fundamentally, you know, at the root of of uh, their purposes and trying to recruit pe- people to their religion. Absolutely, you know, just, it's all it's all a it's all a marketing game. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why it's important that the new guy gives the new insight to help save the church from becoming irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It, I think it's key to point out too that the way Benson starts and ends this talk. He, he says why he's giving it. Um, he, of course, says that this is a generation which might well witness the return of our Lord. Right? Oh, you know, premillennialism, right? It's right here, you know, end of the world. Um, but he says this, God has reserved you for the 11th hour, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It will be your responsibility to not only, um, not only to help bear off the kingdom of God triumphantly, but to save your own soul. And strive to save those of your family and to honor the principles of our inspired constitution. That's how he starts it. And how he ends it is in conclusion. He he calls this a grand key, these 14 fundamentals, for our salvation hangs on them. Yeah. Um, And I know uh, we have limited time here. One thing that I just, I, I can't not point out is he tells a story. I'm trying to think if I should read this. Um, let me just read this. He cites President Marion G. Romney. Yes, he is related to Mitt Romney. Um, he tells of an incident that happened to him. So he's quoting Marion G. Romney's story. Um, I remember years ago when I was a bishop and had President Heber J. Grant talk to our ward. After the meeting, I drove him home. Standing by me, he put his arm over my shoulder and said, My boy, you always keep your eye on the president of the church. And if he ever tells you to do anything, and it is wrong, and you do it, the Lord will bless you for it. Then with a twinkle in his eye, he said, But you don't need to worry. The Lord will never let his mouthpiece lead the people astray. Conference, October 1960. Even if the president of the church is wrong, you should follow him. And, of course, this makes sense, uh, you know. um, According to the Old Testament, if the prophet is wrong, you stone him. It's death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about that before. Yeah. It's it's brutal stuff. And... um, to, to connect that with the testimony thing, I just I forgot to include this, but just to give, I can't let this pass. One of the 15 today, uh, Quentin Cook, we're going to bring up Cook on the Roman study because I'm going to show how he uses sources. But anyway, he gives a talk in 
uh, no, <clears throat> sorry, October 2016, Valiant in the Testimony of Jesus. So here's one of their prophets speaking about the importance of being uh, bearing testimony, right? He says this, Being valiant in the testimony of Jesus is the simple, essential test between those who will inherit the blessings of the celestial kingdom and those in the lesser terrestrial kingdom. Being valiant in our testimony of Jesus is a stepping stone toward qualifying for the Savior's grace and the celestial kingdom. Notice what unites all these, right? They always say your own soul, your own salvation hangs on following us, on bearing testimony about us. On And, and even in Benson's testimony, right? This is his section on Jesus. I want people to hear this. I testify that Christ was born into mortality with Mary as his mother and our heavenly father as his father. You've covered that. He lived a sinless life, providing us a perfect example. That's how he follows the sinless life point, Mm -hmm. that he's a perfect example. Remember, Jesus to us is not just an example of faith, but an object of faith. That's right. We don't try to have faith the way he had faith. We have faith in him. That's right. Because he is the one God. In clothed in flesh, Colossians, and the only yes, joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to receive the inheritance of the saints in light. Mm. You don't qualify yourself. The Father is the one who qualified you. How did He qualify you through the objective redemptive work of Jesus on the cross by the shedding of His blood? Colossians one, go look at it. We have the forgiveness of sins. Yes. So yes. that's what we mean by the object. We mean that Jesus did it for us. Yes. And so our faith is in him. Mm-hmm. We are trusting in him for our salvation. Right. He is our qualification. Mm-hmm. Um, the Father sent him to qualify us. Yep. And so, yeah, it's we're not doing it on our own. No. So. And a gift, for it to be a gift, grace to be grace must be free. Yeah. I mean that it's not a supplement. <laughs> mm-hmm. It it's either a gift or it's not. Yeah. And we're yeah. going to get to this in Romans, right? The righteousness which is by works, he compares contrasts with the righteousness which is by faith. A work of wages earned. Yeah. But grace is received in faith. It's a gift of God. Yeah. And that's why he can justify the ungodly. Yeah. Whereas this is Benson bearing testimony as a prophet that we're supposed to follow. He worked out, Jesus worked out the great atonement, which through his grace provides for every soul a resurrection and for the faithful, the means to become exalted in the celestial kingdom. Just one more. God will give rewards to each according to the deeds done in the flesh. And then his last testify to you that a fullness of joy can only come through the atonement of Jesus, Jesus Christ, and by obedience, and by obedience to all the laws and ordinances of the gospel, which are found only in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Compare and contrast that with what you just said in Colossians. If Paul is an example of someone we should listen to in in follow insofar as he follows Christ, these both can't, these are two different gods. These are two different Christs. These are two different atonements. These are two different messages. These are two different grounds. These are two different things to testify of. These are two different, I mean, every at every point, there's an antithesis 
And the second you start defining it, that's where you see the deeper you go, the more different it is. You can listen to the gospel objective apart from Paul's experience preached to us through through the apostle as documented in the scriptures or follow your feelings work to get a testimony work to maintain it subjectively by following prophets like Ezra Taft Benson and the Jesus he teaches but yeah. they, you can't have both they're not the same that's yeah. the point one or the other they yeah, cannot yeah. both be true simultaneously yeah. i used a, a, a opening illustration of my server this sunday that i think illustrates this well and it was uh it was talking about uh taylor swift and what life would be like <laughs> with uh to be taylor swift and you know you you can imagine what it'd be like you get a lot of junk mail you'd get a <laughs> lot of activity on social media you'd get people you know fawning over you and and wanting to meet up with you and all sorts of stuff and and so time magazine was interviewing taylor swift to ask about what all that was like and uh he said that it was absolutely overwhelming because he is simply a commercial fisherman living in seattle and uh just trying to make a living and has a photography side hustle but yes, his name is Taylor Swift. <laughs> so yeah, there's more than one Taylor Swift in the world, people. And uh, one of them is uh, just a dude in Seattle trying to make a living, getting bombarded with, with, with fan mail. mail. <laughs> but the point I made is, yeah. how do you know? How do you know which is which? which Taylor Swift is who? Well, you you look at the distinctives. As soon as I tell you that he's a man who's living in Seattle, working as a commercial fisherman, I've told you enough that you need to know to know that that's not the Taylor Swift that you probably thought of at first, which is of course the celebrity pop singer mm -hmm. who everybody in the world seems to love, but I don't even know. I don't even know her. Yeah. Stuff. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but the point is that the Bible makes those fundamentals about Jesus clear. Now, like I know that there, you could drill down into a lot of finer points of doctrine um, regarding Christ and should as a believer, but you've got to have at least the fundamentals right. Yeah, you know, like the, I could pick some more abstract peripheral facts that Taylor Swift in Seattle and Taylor Swift, who's on tour right now, have in common. Um, but when I just simply boil it down to the fundamentals of who that person is, you know that that's a different person. Yes, and it's that simple with our faith. We are talking about. Uh, Jesus, who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, yes. not made, mm -hmm. one with the Father. You know, like, th th this is the Jesus of Scripture. This is the Jesus that the apostles and prophets testified to. And I was just thinking about this today as I was, again, thinking about this just insatiable desire that LDS people have for ongoing revelation. Yes. And I just think that that sort of desire for ongoing revelation can only exist in a religion that wants to decenter Jesus and put themselves right smack in the middle of the purpose of all history. Because what you're doing is you're seeking after these desires, you're seeking after these experiences, you're seeking after these revelations, ultimately to... Uh, to pander to your selfish desires for a religious experience, whatever that may be. And of course, in the LDS system, we know that you literally are putting yourself and your exaltation at the very center of the purpose for everything. Jesus came for you and for your exaltation so that you can one day rule supremely just as he does. By following um, his example. By following his example. But this ongoing desire for revelation is nothing more than a detraction from the revelation of God 
in the scriptures of the true Christ that the true apostles testified to that's been written down for us to know. And, uh, you know, the point that I just want to make here at the end here, and this is just filling in some things that we've already commented on, is uh, is just another, another aspect to consider when we as Protestants, of course, say the canon is closed. And Michael Kruger writes about this in his book, Canon Revisited. I would recommend Fantastic. that you go check that book out. But one of the things that he highlights when he's talking about the closing of the canon is the fact that all of the early testimony of the church fathers indicates that church fathers believed the canon was closed. Um, and that goes to uh, examples of people like Dionysus of Corinth in in uh, AD 170, and Irenaeus in AD 180. And so, you know, you'll hear LDS scholars at times comment, well, the canon wasn't even closed until 400 yep. or the, the fourth century. Um, and sometimes people even try to say it happened at Nicaea. Nicaea had nothing, nothing to, do to do with, with the it canon. at all. I don't know where that um, came so from. So <laughs> that's just a terrible thought. So if you're LDS and you've said that, go fact check yourself so you don't have yeah. to embarrass yourself it's anymore because i've seen that. the da vinci code that's, that's yeah yeah from. there you go so um but but uh, kruger draws out these examples that church leaders like church bishops were being very cautious to make clear that the their letters were not to be read as scripture um i'm just a church leader i am not the same as the apostles the apostles have a different purpose the the apostles are writing scripture and they yes. re- even refer to the writings of the apostles as scripture um so i just want to read this one quote that i think helps to culminate some of this idea of why it's so critical to have a closing of the canon to keep our focus on Jesus, who is the purpose of the entire canon, to to teach and declare what he has come to accomplish um, in, in his uh, incarnate work and in who he is in his very person, both divine and human. Um, Listen to this. This is this is actually uh, Ritter Boss, and uh, Kruger is quoting him. Big fan. Yeah. When understood in terms of the history of redemption, the canon cannot be open. In principle, it must be closed. That follows directly from the unique and exclusive nature of the power of the apostles received from Christ and from the commission he gave them to be witnesses to what they had seen and heard of the salvation he had brought. The result of this power and commission is the foundation of the church and the creation of the canon, and therefore these are naturally unrepeatable and exclusive in character. I love the way that he puts that because yes. basically, well, I mean, one of the claims that LDS people will make is in the great apostasy that occurred after everybody had killed the Lord's apostles. Right. Well, if the great apostasy really occurred, um, what, what you're actually saying is it had to occur within the apostles. Otherwise, the apostles who were original failed in their task Yes, because their task was to testify to who Christ is and was to lay the foundation for the church. And so you actually, as an LDS person, to be consistent with that way of thinking, have to say, well, if the scriptures aren't trustworthy, if the scriptures aren't the true, final, complete revelation of God, if the canon is not closed, then the apostles who were original failed in their calling. And they failed as apostles, and yeah. therefore they shouldn't have been trusted. So why would you trust your current apostles any more than the ones who were the original apostles who actually saw the living Christ, who witnessed his resurrection, who were taught by him themselves? Why would you trust them any more if they were failures 
at writing down the testimony of what we needed to know about Jesus in order to accurately and faithfully continue to carry on his message to the ends of the earth. Right. And I've mentioned Ted Callister tries to avoid that. Ted Callister, sorry, he's a member of the 70, uh, the LDS Quorum of the 70, who has tried to dodge that by blaming not the apostles, but the Christians. If they had only been more righteous, maybe, you know, there wouldn't have been an apostasy. Yeah, but but just to yeah, it's fascinating. But just just to be clear again, how that that connects because early Christians understood that principle. Yes, and so early Christians were very very mindful of the fact that the canon is closed. Um, yes. you don't continue to write scripture now. If we're if we're in the second century, you can't write scripture because mm-hmm. scripture is what was written by the apostolic witness to Christ. Um, you know who is is the revelation of God. Right. If we wrote um, just what we wanted as, a, I don't know, a story in a few chapters and tried to add it to the Book of Mormon, what do you think they would think? Yeah. I, I mean, they'd be like, no, the Book of Mormon is what it is. That's what we're saying. Yeah. And one thing that's super helpful for Kruger, I'll make this quick, is um, think of it this way. Did God, does God inspire all books? I hope you said no. Does he inspire some books? Yes. What are those books? And the, the church is necessary component of either way we talk about it. Is the canon a thermometer in terms of receiving and in, in, in even spending time debating which books? Or is it a thermostat the church can set by arbitra- arbitrarily deciding that? And I think the LDS have never thought about it in terms of a thermometer, which is the Protestant position. Yeah. And it is not all books. They'll say, well, they, do, they couldn't decide, and they'll focus on three or four books, typically the shortest ones. Yep. No, four Gospels, the Pauline Corpus, you know, I mean, it is 24 out of 27, yeah. something like that. Major, Kruger puts in the major stats. consensus. Even within yep. the, the first 100 years yep. of the apostles. That's right. It was like the church yeah. knew yes. which books were canon and were trying to decide just on a few that yeah. were more peripheral. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and that's, <laughs> once again, it's because the church is trying to receive what God has inspired. And wh- why would it be natural? You're going to hear this all the time, even including Jared Anderson. We haven't brought up Jared Anderson for a while, but this is how he tra- you know, tries to talk about the canon. Like it was just this, it wasn't a literate culture, which is weird. Yeah. Um, a Jewish culture wasn't literate. Think of the Old Testament. It was probably the most literate culture in the world. But anyway, um, no, think about it. If you have a Jewish covenantal Old Testament worldview and you have a new Moses at the very least, and he was way more than that, but he, you know, what do you expect? To ha- what did Moses do yeah, in your right. view? Yeah. Like, what are you expecting to do? So when Paul says, it's not just these random letters, that's how they're going to talk right. about it. Be like, yep. oh, it's just random mail. No, when Paul says in to the Corinthians, we as ministers of the new covenant, that's right. what do covenants have? Covenants involve books. That's what, have been ex- that's what would have been expected. That's right. And those books to be preserved and collected and copied and passed down are what the church fathers are trying to do, are engaging in, and and so on. Whereas, you know, Benson, I won't read the thing, but, you know, he, of course, part of his testimony is the spiritual dark ages. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. The and, apostasy, you know, the apostasy, yeah. whatever. But for us, we would say, you know, the gates of hell did not prevail against Christ's church. 
uh, Christ succeeded, the Holy Spirit preserved those books, and the Christians were faithful enough, right? And God was faithful even through unfaithful Christians, yeah. right, to preserve the book so that we can read them today. That's right. And so we've got what we need. Yes. And we don't need a modern-day prophet. No. Uh, the apostles did their job, mm-hmm. and we can look to their testimony. All right, next week, Romans 1 to 6. Look forward to it. <laughs>